I've said this before many times. I love a good story. I love movies. I love a good book. I love a good television show. Just because I love a good story. In every book, every movie, or TV show, there is a subject or an object or some kind of event or desire that is used as motivation to advance the plot of the story. In the mid 1900s or the early 1900s, Alfred Alfred Hitchcock and Angus McFay um, coined this literary device as the McGuffin, which is a fun word to say. And the more you say it, the more you want a McMuffin from McDonald's. But the McGuffin is something that just brings forward the plot. And so in action movies, the McGuffin is like the nuclear codes that the good guys need to get before the bad guys. Or in a romance movie, the MacGuffin is that desire to find true love or to find that special person. Or in adventure stories, the MacGuffin is that final destination that the characters are heading towards. So for an example, in Lord of the Rings, the MacGuffin is the ring of power that they're bringing to Mount Doom to destroy. Or in New Hope, the first movie of the original Star Wars trilogy, the MacGuffin is the Death Star plans that show how the rebels can destroy the Death Star before the Death Star destroys them. And if you were to take a second and think of your favorite TV show, or your favorite book, or your favorite movie, it too has some MacGuffin that is driving forward the plot. However, it's usually not till the end of the story that the characters arrive at or reach or accomplish whatever that MacGuffin is. And that is why the MacGuffin in and of itself is insignificant, it's unimportant, almost irrelevant to the story, except for what the journey to it brings to it. It's why in Lord of the Rings, the eagles don't fly Frodo to Mount Doom immediately, because that just would be a dumb story. (laughs) It's why in Star Wars, when Luke gets the plans to the Death Star, he doesn't just fly up into space and blow it up immediately because that too would just be a dumb story. It's watching the heroes of the stories overcome the challenges, grow as characters that make the moment when they finally reach that MacGuffin so memorable, so significant. Over the last 12 years of you guys' life, you graduates, graduation has been the MacGuffin of your life, one of many. At times, maybe the one that has seemed like the most important or the most pressing MacGuffin of your life. And now that you've accomplished that goal, now that you've reached that, you're beginning a new chapter of your life where you're going to pick new goals or new objects, new desires, new events to strive towards. And so whatever you set your mind on next, whether it's picking what profession you're going to go into, or continuing your education, or finding a spouse and starting a family, or whatever it is, becoming the first human to wrestle an alligator on the moon, I don't know. Whatever that is, whatever you set your mind on next, my hope and my prayer that the central MacGuffin of your life, the thing you strive after the most, is your relationship, your discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus that you would continue to strive towards what it means to live in the kingdom of God and to also live out the kingdom of God. That out of all the MacGuffins, all the goals, priorities that you have set, that your discipleship to Jesus would be the first and most 
prioritized one. And so this morning, I want to spend my time just highlighting five things to remember about our call to be a disciple of Christ. And so this morning, it's not just for the graduates. It's a great reminder for all of us, myself definitely included, of the call that we are called, wow, the call to be a disciple. And so as I was preparing this sermon, I asked um, my staff members what the top five reminders of where a disciple or apprenticeship is or were. And each of them came up with five different answers, and some of their lists overlapped, and then some had just different answers too. And so this morning I want to admit up front that this is not an extensive list that covers all of what it means to be a disciple. These are just five things I feel that I want to highlight of what a disciple is. And so my first point this morning is I want to highlight a disciple follows the teachings and practices of Jesus. This is a pretty obvious one, you'd think, right? To be a disciple is to follow Jesus. But I think it is important to say that to follow the teachings actually means to live them out. It's not just to know the teachings, but to actually do what Jesus calls us to do. This is, there's this very scary passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount saying this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes down a couple of verses later, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against their house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. To be a disciple is to put into practice and to live out the teachings of Jesus, not just to know them, but to live them, to follow them. And I don't mean this in some legalistic way that you must do A, B, and C out of obligation, but it's out of that desire and understanding that the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom of God, of God is better than anything the kingdom of this world has to offer. And I know that right there is just a complete whole different sermon and discussion that could be had you know, at a different time, because that's just hours and hours of discussion there. But that leads me to my second point this morning, is that a disciple puts on the heart of God to see and to love others like him. You've heard Brad and I quote this over the years, but John Mark Comer describes discipleship as the process of being with becoming like and doing what Jesus would do. The more and more you spend with Jesus, the more and more you become like him. Part of, what, part of becoming like Jesus is to have your heart transformed into the likeness of Jesus' heart. It's where we see and love others around us like God would. Throughout all the four Gospels, there's story after story of Jesus' love and care for those around them. Those that the society would deem sinners who were marginalized, oppressed, people who were looked down upon, despised, and hated. Yet story after story, Jesus goes to their house, eats with them, heals them, and invites them into the kingdom. In the Old Testament, there was two reasons why the Israelites were exiled 
from the promised land. The first was that they stopped worshiping God and started worshiping the idols of their neighbors. And the second was they stopped caring for the poor and the orphans and the widows and the foreigners, but instead took advantage of them and oppressed them. So to have the heart of God is to see the hungry and give them food, to see the poor and give them money, to see the marginalized and the outcast and give them a place in the community, to see the oppressed and give their freedom and voice back, to see the orphan and see the widow and give them a family, to see the prisoner and to restore his humanity. In Matthew 25, Jesus uses a parable to teach on the final judgment. And in this parable, he uses the example of a shepherd that takes and separates his sheep from the goats. And the goats, he sends the fiery pit, and the sheep are allowed to enter into eternity. The only difference between the two groups was this. The sheep saw the hungry and fed them, saw the stranger and showed hospitality, saw the needy and clothed them, saw the sick and cared for them, saw the prisoner and visited them. Well, on the other hand, the goats saw the same people but didn't do anything. The goats had the right theology, but they didn't have the right heart. So a key part of discipleship the key part of that journey is having our hearts transformed into the likeness of God's heart. To put off our hearts of stone and to receive a heart of flesh where the teachings of Jesus are etched and tattooed onto it. The third point this morning is a continuation of the second right there. And as a disciple lays down his rights and power to humbly serve others. In Matthew 20, we're introduced to a story where James and John are trying to convince Jesus to give them the greatest seats of power in his kingdom. And not only that, they get their mom to do it for them, which is just shows how pathetic they are. <laughs> They're like, all right, I want power, but mommy, can you do it for me? But we see Jesus respond to them, saying this. He says this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom to many. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes about Jesus' life, and it shows that Jesus humbly laid down his rights and his powers, and his authority to be born as a baby, to come and serve, and to die for the sake of humanity. As disciples, we're not called to seek power for the sake of the kingdom, but in humility, set aside any power we might have to serve and to care for the needs of others. Fourth point this morning is this. A disciple is focused on the communal, not the individual, or over the individual. One of the greatest downfalls of the Western and American church, in my opinion, is how we have let the individualization of our culture individualize the Christian faith. 
where it has become all about our personal salvation and our personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, one of the two, or two of the biggest reasons why people change churches is one, the sermon, or two, the worship doesn't fit their personal preferences. If Christianity was all about the individual, the early church would not have poured together all of their wealth so that everybody in their community was cared for. Paul wouldn't have needed to write 13 letters to the early church calling them to unity. If it was just about our personal salvation and our personal relationship with God, Jesus wouldn't have said in John chapter 13 that his disciples would be known for their love for one another. It would have made way more sense for him to say his disciples would be known by their personal devos in the morning. Forever, the Bible is full of communal language. We're not saved into an individual relationship with just God and us, but we're saved into a community, into a kingdom, where together it's about our relationship with one another and as a group with God. To continue with the communal side, our fifth point this morning is a disciple is not only discipled, but disciples others. The final command Jesus gave his followers in Matthew 20 before ascending into heaven was to go and make disciples of all nations. Some of the Greek scholars interpret this passage to say, as you are going through life, make disciples. What it looks like then is as you live life, being intentional to look around you to see whom you can disciple, whom you can share the gospel with. And to know that making a disciple is going on that journey with them. And it can span maybe years. It's willing to look for ways to serve and to care, to love them like Christ. To do life with them, to invite them into your house, to show hospitality. And doing so through a relationship, able to teach and equip and train them in the way of Christ and the kingdom of God. Now, I'll be the first to say this. Out of those five on that list, I am not perfect at those. I have not fully arrived. I cannot say that I have obtained or reached the point where I have fully achieved what it is to be a disciple. But I'm on that journey, just as I hope all of you are too. And that's the cool thing about discipleship. It is a lifelong journey where day after day we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. There's ups and downs, there's highs and lows, valleys and mountaintop experiences. It's a lifelong journey that doesn't end on this side of eternity, but goes all the way until we're face-to-face with God. And for those of us who have put our faith and allegiance in Jesus, we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Most of our other goals and desires and events, the MacGuffins in our lives, most of those, we get to the point where we have reached or achieved them in life. Whereas discipleship is the perfect MacGuffin of all because it will take us on a journey, on an adventure, a story to remember as we spend time with Jesus become like Jesus and live like Jesus that we will never be able to achieve or reach until 
eternity. And so it's my hope and prayer for you graduates and everybody else here this morning is that you would make discipleship to Jesus the first and the central goal and purpose of your life. That you would continue to live and breathe Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to close this part of the service with a song. And this is a new song that has not been played here before, at least that I know of. And the song is called First Things First. It's a beautiful song. If you guys don't know the lyrics, just I want you guys to meditate on the words. It's all about putting our faith and our walk with Jesus first above the things around us in the world. And so for some of you who maybe you haven't started that journey of being a disciple, maybe as you listen to the song, this can be the first push to invite you into that lifelong journey of growing in a relationship with God, learning to be loved and love like him. Maybe some of you who are noticing those areas of your life that you're unwilling to give up on that discipleship journey. Maybe the song can be that push to say, all right, God, I'm going to give you that part of my life. And I'm going to seek after you and your kingdom.